Amen. You may be seated. The story began at uh, the first verse of chapter 3 when Peter and John are going up to the temple and are confronted by a, a cripple who had been brought there by his friends and who looked to them for a handout of some sort, to which Peter replied that famous response, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And the man did. He got up and he walked, helped up by Peter and John, and he walked and then he jumped and he praised that Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And as you might imagine, that got the attention of the folks there coming to the temple uh, to worship. And they started asking questions. What in the world has happened? We know this guy. He's 40 years old. He's been, he's, he's been here ever since we can remember. He's never been able to walk or jump or do anything like that. And here he is hopping all over the place. What is it? How did you do that? They asked Peter and John. And Peter, always the mouthpiece, Peter responds. And he responds by preaching a sermon or beginning to preach a sermon. And he's getting into the sermon. And he's starting to bring it home. When we come to the end of chapter 3 and then begin chapter 4. By the authorities coming in and arresting Peter and John. And putting them in custody and holding them overnight. And we noted last week as we looked at that passage that, that here is the uh, record of the first known uh, persecution of the Christian church there in Jerusalem. And so the next morning they called Peter and John in and before all of the authorities, before the high priest and the priest and the uh, lawyers and, and uh, scribes and uh, you know all the others, these 70 men plus one, the chief priest who is sort of like the chief justice of our Supreme Court who moderated the court, and they bring these two in before them. And they ask them the same question everybody else was asking, how'd you do this? Whereupon Peter does exactly what he did the day before in the court of the temple. Now he's in a little ante room that serves as a courtroom. He begins preaching. He starts preaching the resurrected Christ and the power of the resurrected Christ. And, and in doing so, he sums up the New Testament, we said last week, in, in, in a sentence. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that's where we ended. That was the end of 
chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Uh, we spoke a little bit about uh, the fruit of persecution. We, and then we, we talked about the exclusivity of salvation, that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We also talked about the absolute assurance there is in those words, we must be saved. Even as Jesus must go to the cross and must be lifted up and must suffer and must die, and on the third day must be lifted up, so must we be saved on the last day. Well, now we pick up this morning at the 13th verse of uh, the book of Acts. Now when they, the court, the Sanhedrin, it was the Jewish high court, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Before we go on, just a a word of reminder. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is everything that follows chapter 1, verse 8, is sort of an exposition of that text, if you will. And the outline of everything that comes in the book of Acts follows what Jesus said. And you remember that the, the apostles had asked him about when the kingdom was going to come in its full power and might. And he sort of shoo-shooed and said, you know, don't worry about that. You stay in Jerusalem and wait. And when the Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. That's your business. The rest is the Father's business. And what we're seeing is that working out. We're seeing now the the disciples witness in Jerusalem, first stage of the unfolding of the gospel to the world. And Peter and John are on trial because of the success they're having. The church has gone from 120 
the week before Pentecost, to 3,120 at the end of Pentecost, to, the, to, to a total of 5,000 men on, in this particular instance, not counting the women who are in another court of the temple. Lord knows how many of those were. And so they're on trial because of it. Derek Thomas, I read a sermon by, he was a classmate of mine in seminary, some of you may know him, uh, quotes E.K. Maltby to, to, uh, uh, on the idea of what Jesus promised to his disciples. He said he promised them three things. They'd be absurdly happy, they'd be completely fearless, and they'd be in constant trouble. And so they were. Here it begins. Picture now the scene. They're in this anteroom of the temple, which is the courtroom for the Jewish Supreme Court. And, and the authorities are there, and they're kind of however they sat, or probably I see a big semicircle or whatever. And they're attired, uh, well, they're, they're, they're dressed in Brooks Brothers. Uh, they have their charcoal gray pinstripe suit, white shirt, reptile. Uh, they look like what they are. They are the officials. They are the authorities. They are the upper crust. Uh, they, that's what they are. And in their midst are Peter and John, fishermen. Men from the country, they, they, they don't come from Judea, they're from Galilee. Can anything good come out of Galilee? They're dressed in Dickie's blue jeans they bought at the harvest store. White t-shirt. Cajun Reeboks. You know, I meant to bring mine in here to, because there's somebody in this room that probably has no idea what I just said. The white boots that every shrimper and fisherman in South Louisiana wear as part of their uniform. There they are. The authorities in their Brooks Brothers have their PhDs and THDs and JDs and the lower and the lowly ones have demons. They're doctors of philosophy, doctors of theology, doctors of jurisprudence, and there are a handful of doctors of ministry uh, there among them. Peter and John are unlearned, undegreed fishermen. The authorities speak in cultured tones of the educated upper class. I suspect that Peter and John spoke well more on the order of Viola Fouche or Lower St. Bernard or Baratarian Bay. And I say that, and I've got to say this, I grew up with fishermen around them and in my family. Because they were not necessarily educated to the highest degree doesn't mean they weren't smart. They could read water, they could read tides, they could read currents, they could read the sun, they could read the stars, they could... They knew things. But I don't know of any of them that I would call mattered or learned. 
There were even a couple that were illiterate. I remember a story. Uh, my mother told me he was in the in the real estate business at one time, and had this guy who came in, and everybody in town knew him. He was a fisherman, a successful one, but a fisherman. And he came in to buy a piece of property out on Lake Pontchartrain. And this is 50 years ago or more. And uh, he had his Dickies blue jeans, his you know his his Cajun Reeboks, his white T-shirt. That's all he ever wore. All I ever remember seeing him in. And he reached into his pocket, Mama said, and he said, how much is this lot? And they told him, he said, well, I'm not going to pay that much for it. He said, but I'll pay this. And he pulled out, and I think the amount was $10,000 out of his Dickies blue jeans and threw it on the desk. And they said, we think the owner will take that. That's 50 years ago. There's $100,000 today, I suspect. And it was rolled up, because he had kept it rolled up at his house, he didn't believe in banks. And they handed him the purchase agreement to sign. He signed it in the facts. And three people witnessed, you know, yes, he really did sign this. And uh, he may have been illiterate, but he was highly successful. And uh, he was no dummy. Just plain, uncultured, People from the country that made their living braving the elements, fooling with the elements with their hands as well as their brains. Having said all that, remember this Peter and John may have been so dressed in the first century equivalent of our fishermen in Louisiana. They also wrote seven of the 27 books of the New Testament. They may be unlettered in, in one sense. They may have been unlearned and common men, but they were no dummies. But what got the authorities' attention, what astonished them was how bold these men were. They knew they were uneducated. They knew they were common men. They looked at them, and yet these men are arguing their case before the Supreme Court. Stop a minute. Picture that. My uncle had a friend who was a shrimper at Grand Isle, again, 50 years ago. My uncle had befriended him somehow or other, and he invited him to come down and shrimp with him whenever he wanted to, and he'd sell him his catch, whatever he could get at the dock. My uncle asked me to go down there and shrimp with him. So we would go down and we'd go down here early so that we could go out with him on the boat. And, uh, you know, we, we wanted to help him, but he told us to just get out of the way. <laughs> and uh, he didn't have time for us to help. Uh, but we'd, we'd shrimp with him, come in and buy his catch. And, uh, but we'd also get fed this huge meal by his wife at 10 o'clock in the morning because his day was done by then. And we'd go home with, with seafood gumbo and uh, Louisiana coffee cans to bring to our wives and family. <laughs> and whenever I read this, you know, I said last week, whenever I, I read chapter 3 of Acts, and, and, I think of this guy that sat outside of the Catholic Church on the most of the Every day I walk on and everything I read this passage about them defending themselves before the Supreme Court, 
I picture this friend of mine, you know, <laughs> who was, I mean, he was a shrimper from Grand Isle, and that sums everything up. And I picture him in Washington, D.C., you know, representing himself on some case before the Supreme Court. I mean, it's just, it's a strange picture. And they're arguing their case, and the thing about it is, they're winning their case. And gradually it comes to the authorities. These men have been with that man, Jesus. Maybe because they've seen him, seen them with him, but probably more because they were so much like him. Uneducated in the rabbinical sense, they didn't have degrees in theology, and yet they knew a whole lot about God. They didn't have the authority that the authorities had, and yet they spoke with such authority and with such knowledge and with such power. The authorities would have attempted to argue with them and to refute them and punish them. But, but for what was staring them in the face. Because with Peter and John, the text says, was the cripple. Congenitally crippled from birth, 40 years old, completely healed, walking, jumping, talking, praising God. So they went into executive session. If you've ever moderated a meeting and you get into somewhere you don't know what in the world you're going to do, you clear the room and you regroup. So they go into executive session and say, we've got a problem, <laughs> you know. We, we ought to correct these guys. We ought to, you know, we ought to punish them. But if we do anything, I mean, that guy is standing there. He walked in. He was jumping around in the temple. He's obviously healed. Something obviously has taken place. And the people, they'll have our hides. And so they decided to flex their muscle, to exercise their authority, so they came out and they said, you guys quit talking about this Jesus. To which they say, but we can't. We can't. We can't stop talking about what we have seen and what we have heard. John MacArthur talks about the great irony in that. He said, the first Christians had to be ordered not to talk about Jesus. Paul could write, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Jeremiah in the Old Testament, speaking of the Lord, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. We cannot not speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. This Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
raised from the dead, this man whom you crucified. But God rose up from the dead and who has healed this man you see here. How in the world can we be quiet? We can't. Opens the whole question of civil disobedience. Uh, let me just give you a principle. We should obey civil authority so long as we can do so without disobeying God. Remember the Hebrew midwives. Remember, Dan remember Daniel praying at the open window when he was ordered not to pray except to the idol. And that's all we'll say. We'll deal with that some other time. It raises another question. More important. Have you ever had to be told to stop talking about Jesus? Have you ever gotten into trouble for talking about this Jesus Christ of Nazareth? And the wonders that are done in his name. And of his cross. And of its grave. And of his resurrection. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. There is seeing and there is seeing. There is hearing and there is hearing. There is seeing and hearing and there is seeing and hearing. We see, I don't understand how that works. I could get Richard up here, he'd tell us all about how that works, I'll bet you. Uh, but, you know, the eyes, I don't know, it makes some sort of, we see with the eyes, it goes in some, all of this magic happens in our heads, it goes through our brains and we, and I see you out there, and I see the color shirt you're wearing and all of that. And I don't know how it happens. And I hear I hear you. You hear me. Sounds bounce on the audio nerves or something, auditory nerves. And, and they too go to the brain and they're processed and we make sense out of all that. I, I don't know how that works. And, and, and in addition, it, you know, that's physical. But then, and also, that affects us, our in, in, intelligence. So it, it goes through our brain. It becomes, you know, we understand it intellectually, sort of. Or, or we, we are, get emotionally involved with whatever it was we saw or heard. Still in the physical realm. But then there's that seeing and hearing that yeah, it's related to eyes and ears and that sort of seeing here. It's a seeing here in the soul. It's the realm of the spirit. It's what the Holy Spirit works in us. It's how he brings us into a relationship with Jesus and through Jesus with God the Father. And there are many who have seen and heard and yet never seen or heard. We read our Bibles and on the pages of this book I see these words. I see them. And in those words I see Jesus. I see the words with my eyes. I see Jesus with my soul. 
we, we hear sermons, Sunday school lessons, vacation Bible school, all of that, Bible studies. We see, we hear, but do we see and hear? The men were talking about what they saw physically with their eyes, what they heard Jesus say, what they heard happen around him. And yet, it was that hearing and seeing with the soul that led them to say, we cannot shut up. We can't keep quiet. Remember Jesus talking about, if I shut up, the rocks will shout out. And so it is with the apostles must speak of what we have seen and what we have heard and what the Spirit has brought to us and and put inside us and it's like fire in our bones and it has to come out. If it doesn't, if it doesn't come out, we'll just burst into fire and burn up or something. It has to come out. You know what they're talking about? raises other questions. They knew that these men had been with Jesus. Can anyone tell you've been with Jesus? It's an honest question. Now we don't spend time with Jesus like Peter and John were able to spend time with Jesus. But we read the Bible. We read the New Testament in the Bible. We pray. We meditate. I mean, there is a difference between the way we spend time with Jesus and the way John and Peter and the others did when he was here on earth. Yet we do spend time with him. But how can others tell? I served as a deacon in the church a long time ago long before I went to seminary. A man who no one would ever question had been with Jesus. And I got to tell you a little bit about him. He was was illiterate. His father was a janitor. He hadn't had a janitor in the church anymore. And so this guy grew up literally in the church, up in the bed, cleaning the church. And as time went on, he handled these things and he became a carpenter. And that's what he was when I knew him. And he married and he and his wife had no children. And so they adopted a little girl. Not a baby, but but young. And and it was pressing on this man that he was illiterate. And so his wife, who had up to that time signed everything, wrote all the checks, did everything, read to him the newspaper and things he didn't know, uh, Bible passage. She read the Bible at night and they prayed together. And so she began to teach him to read his King James Version Bible. And it was painful. Uh, we would read in meetings, you know, we'd read passages of scripture and get to him. And I mean it was in the 
But if you're, ever, if you're ever at his house in the evening, when it was time for the little girl to go to bed, to see him with her in his lap, reading to her, that finger under each word, painfully sounding them out. But over the years leading that child to Christ, there was no one that knew him, that had ever been around him and watched him. That one ever questioned. The question might be asked, when has this man ever not been with Jesus? He lived with him, he walked with him. Is there irrefutable evidence of your having been with Jesus? Look, the authorities in Jerusalem could not refute the evidence of the healed cripple. He had obviously been changed. He was doing things he had never been able to do in his life. The text said he was 40 years old. And they could not refute that much as they wanted to. Nor could they refute what had happened to Peter and John. Think of Peter in particular. Now here's Peter, the mouthpiece. He's always been the mouthpiece, but remember in Matthew 16, he was the mouthpiece to Satan. Who do you guys say that I am? Jesus asked Peter, speaks the mouthpiece for the apostles. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. As for you, Simon Bar-Jonas, for, you know, you didn't just come up with that on your own. My father revealed that to you. And then Jesus begins to speak about it. Okay, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, must suffer at the hands of the authorities, must be given up, must die, must be. And somewhere in there, Peter butts in and says, No, no, no. No, Lord, not you. He said, Satan, get behind me. Remember, he was the mouthpiece for Satan. Remember, in the. With Jesus and Moses and Elijah and Elijah. And and Peter doesn't know what else is. So Peter goes, let's build a hut for you and a hut for uh, Moses and a hut for Elijah. I guess you're going to keep them there. Make a, I don't know, a spiritual Disney world or something with them. Or there's Jesus, uh, uh, Peter, the night Jesus is brought into custody and the trial begins denying the Savior three times just as Jesus had said he would and now here's that Peter still the mouthpiece but speaking with power and making sense and refuting the authorities it's a new Peter it's a new Peter. It was a new John. It was a new cripple. It was a new deacon. <laughs> I, I went to school with the guy briefly. I was in eighth grade. I think he was in the ninth. I don't know if he finished that year. He never came back after that year. Uh, he was old enough to get a commercial driver's license at that point. And he got out of the truck. And... 
some kind of rather not dump truck, you know, years after. Didn't know whatever became of him. You know, didn't know much about him. He was a rather rough sort of guy. And, uh, and then I was watching national news in the late 60s, early 70s. And there was, a, and what caught my attention was that there was a civil rights demonstration in Bogalusa, Louisiana. And, uh, and they're showing a picture of it. And I'm watching it. And as there was a procession, a parade or whatever, and in that was a big black limousine. And the windows were over there, and there were national figures in there from national civil rights organizations. And the windows were down, and they were in a way like a new And out of the crowd comes Harry this guy. And he grabs one of the guys in front of him, grabs his arms, and he couldn't close his window. And he's just pounding in the window, beating him in uh, they arrested him, you know, they got him up, finally pulled him off, and, and, I, and it was, there he was. Thirty years later, I, I'm, I'm back home. I'm doing a funeral, I'm talking to my friend, the funeral homeowner, who's the son-in-law of the whole funeral homeowner. And he was, and he, I got out of the funeral and he reminds me that I went out of the and he talked about how amazing it is for me to be there doing what I'm doing. But this day he's telling me that he said, you know, there's something even more amazing I gotta tell you about. And okay, what is it? And he said, day before yesterday, guess who did a funeral here? I had no idea. Billy Graham, I don't know, the Pope, whatever. And he names us the dumb truck. He said, he pastors a church up in the country, you know, 10 miles away. He did the most beautiful stuff. He said, he just, it's, you know, it's just not the same guy. But yet I know it is. I told that story in the summer. A lady in my foundation came up afterwards and said, well, he says a beautiful illustration of whatever in the world I was illustrating at the time. He said, I didn't hear another word you said. So I was sitting there thinking about how I came to Christ. I grew up with Christian parents, grew up in a Christian church, went to Sunday school every, I don't remember ever missing Sunday school, got all these perfect attendance, pins and ribbons and everything. Every vacation Bible school, every, every summer went to Christian parents. I, you know, and all that, I, I, you know, she was the good girl. My whole life has been being the good girl. I never did anything like that wrong. I just grew up in church and did everything wrong. I was thinking about the amount of grace it must have taken to save Diane Stewart. And then I said, how much? did it take to deliver me out of my self-righteousness? I was 40 years old before it hit me. And Jesus came in to the good girls. I say that because 
You know, it's pretty obvious with the truck driver, there's change. Man, there is a life spun around 180 degrees. But it's not just that his life was changed, it was that he was changed. And that's why his life changed. And the good girl, you can never notice a big difference. She didn't live any differently. I would have she's always been a good girl. Just inside that was wrong. Can they tell that you've been changed? You can clean up your act. Everybody, you know, does that at some point in time or some way or other. But, but is it inside? Have you been changed? by being with Jesus. It's, it's not so much that they were changed, any of these people. It's not that their lives were changed, but that they were changed. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here's my point. If you're a Christian, you're someone's best evidence for Christianity. There's someone in your life, someone where you work, in your family, in your home, at school, someone and for them, you're their best evidence for the whole of the Christian faith. My thesis for this whole thing is that Christianity's best evidence is Christians. Christians who have been changed by the power of Jesus of Nazareth through the Holy Spirit. The Jewish authorities marveled at the apostles' bold witness. They had been with Jesus and it showed. They had been changed by Jesus and it showed. They were committed to Jesus whatever it cost. And all of that was because of this relationship, their experience with Jesus. If you're a Christian, Jesus said, you're his witness. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's, the, the question isn't whether or not you're a witness to Christ. You are. Like it or not, whatever. If you're in Christ, you're his witness. The question is, what sort of witness are you? That's the question. Um. Time to quit, past time to quit. Gordon J. Ketty wrote, the cutting edge of Christian witness does not depend on our notion of how we are doing, but the unbeliever's perception of what we are. What do others see when they see you? Pray about it. Our God and Father,
God of mercy and grace, patience, love, faithfulness, forgiveness. God who has come to us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, delivered us from our sin, dealt with all of our unrighteousness, all our shortcomings and failings and failures. O Lord God, grant us grace to look within, to know that you are changing us, that we are new creatures in Christ. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what our Lord Jesus Christ has done. O Lord, give us mouths to proclaim it, to speak. Lord, even if we are silenced, give us grace to speak what we have seen and what we have heard and what we know in the depths of our souls. To your glory and praise and honor forever. Amen.